This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Hello and welcome to the Ladies Who London podcast. This is Alex. And I'm Fiona. Well, sort of Fiona. (laughs) Fiona doesn't have much of a voice this week, I'm afraid, gang. She's rasping away. Such as the perils of high season guiding. You've used it all up. It's all gone. It's just gone. I think you sound deliciously sexy, so I wouldn't worry too much about it. Well, um, welcome to the podcast this week, everyone. Uh, thank you for coming along. I have to say, I, I've i got my doors open today because it is hotter than Satan's trousers in here and there's not a chance I'm going to sit with the doors closed. So if you, And I seem to have some of the loudest birds known to humanity in my garden, although they've all just gone, which is quite handy. So if you do hear lots of tweeting and things going on out there, very sorry, but it's it's incredibly hot so i'm i've shut my windows but then if there was any background noise you wouldn't hear me at all so yeah that's true <laughs> so you might expire during uh during well just our intro because we've uh recorded the main part separately but uh i will be cool but have bird song which is quite nice i suppose <laughs> Fiona's just nodding at me. That's all she can do. <laughs> well, I won't, listen. I won't ask you too much then, Fiona, this week, just because I don't want to. I want you to keep your voice. What remains of it for for your guests? Um, but this week we have a guest along for our podcast, um, and because Fiona had no voice uh, at all, it's just me interviewing our guest. But we'll get to that uh, very shortly. Um, parish notices this week. There are a couple of little things. It's worth letting you know about. One uh, comes from one of our listeners and a good friend of mine, uh, Stacy. Stacy. Dougal, um, who has a vested interest in this particular thing. So a few weeks ago, we chatted to Katie Wignall um, all about the Endell Street Hospital, uh, in particular talking about one of the women who created it and was instrumental in its success and its running, Dr. Flora Murray. Now, Stacey, because she's Scottish, um, obviously is, is a, a, across all of this, sent me a lovely link to an article that said that there is a £100 note in Scotland, which we don't have in, in England at all. We only go as far as 50, we're cheap. Um, but in Scotland, a £100 note which Flora Murray is on and it has just been voted the third most beautiful banknote in the world which I think is pretty impressive um, 
if you're curious about one and two, uh, number one is a thousand peso note by uh, of the Philippines, and the second one a fifty pound Ulster banknote. Uh, but in third place is the glorious Flora Murray, and it is a beautiful, beautiful note actually. Um, which is a weird thing to say about a note, I suppose, but. Uh, <laughs> Uh, it's lovely. She's got pictures of her on there, um, both a portrait and also pictures of them um, taking patients out of one of the, the ambulances and into the um, uh, the hospital. It's really rather lovely. So thanks, Stacey, for letting me know that. I always like it when these things uh, crop back up. <laughs> and then, um, secondly, uh, Fiona's... <laughs> we've just lost Fiona completely. She's just trying to keep her voice. Um <laughs> The, the what was the other thing I wanted to say, Fiona? I can't remember now. Concert. Um, oh yes, yes. So um, this week we're going to have a second, like a little sort of added extra podcast. It's going to come out probably on Sunday. So keep an eye on your podcast boxes. Maybe Saturday. Um, which is a little slightly an extension to one of our previous episodes, which is all about the Match Girls and the Match Girls Strike. Now um, we. This week I had a chat to a lovely lady uh, called Sam who is actually related to one of the match girls. Um, so a lady called Sarah Chapman. And so we had her on uh, to talk all about it. And interestingly, she is the head of the board um, of the Match Girls 1888 uh, Foundation. And they have something coming up which we think would be great for a little podcast outing. We've not done one for a while. Um, on the 1st of July, now admittedly it's only a couple of weeks away, so if you're not in London or haven't got plans to come, it might be out of the realms of possibility. But if you have, we would love to see you. On the 1st of July at 7pm in Bow, um, there is a new piece of music that's been written and it's called, um, well, it's, it's gone under the project name of uh, Striking Sparks. And basically a new piece of music uh, which will be performed by both choir and musicians that are local to the area um, is going to be performed in Bow uh, in a place called the Great Hall of the People's Palace which I have to say I don't know about but I feel like I need to know a bit more about that and um, it's seven, only £7 or £5 for the concessions and Fiona and I are going to go and we thought we'd invite you to come along and join us uh, I'll probably be masked up and hopefully Fiona will have her voice back by then <laughs> Um, but if you'd like to come and join us, please do. It says you can buy tickets in advance or get them on the door. I think we're going to pre-buy just uh, to make sure that we're we're in there. Um, but let's make it another outing. If you're around, I realise it's quite short notice, but if you're around and you fancy it, um, on the 1st of July, please do come and join us. But we'll send some, well, there'll be some more information in the uh, podcast, this sort of extra little um, additional one that will, will come out this week. And we'll put it on our socials too. So if you do want to join us, then you can come along also. and do so. Also, also, you could just come, and you, you don't have to talk to us. Yes, you don't have you to talk to us. Could just stay anonymous <laughs> and just like listen to music and go we'll, home. We'll That's take fine. it personally, but <laughs> which actually, when we did Operation Mince Me, I think somebody did that. Somebody was like, "Oh, I'm too embarrassed to come and say hi." Um, but we had a good a good crowd for that. So yeah, please, you don't feel you have to talk to us. Um, we're good, good, impressive. little. Um, hold that thought, yes, listeners, until next week when I can explain more. But we're going to call back okay. to Operation Mincemeat as well. <gasps> okay. Okay. Exciting. Right. Well, this week, let's crack on with the podcast. And today uh, we are discussing um, somebody who is a really interesting character and not one that I knew anything about. Uh, a lady called Evelyn de Morgan. And Evelyn de Morgan was, well, 
I'll explain a lot. Well, I say I'll explain. Our guest will explain a lot more in the podcast. Um, but she's a very interesting person. And there is an exhibition on all about her in London at the moment. So we will catch you on the flip side. This week, listeners, we have a fantastic guest. I'm really thrilled to introduce you to Sarah Hardy, who is the director of the De Morgan Museum, because we're going to be chatting about a really fascinating woman. So welcome, Sarah, to the Ladies in London podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Now, we, we've got you on because... As, as our listeners know, we, we tend to talk about the people who are less known about in British history. Um, and we do a lot of women as well. Um, and this th- this lady, Evelyn de Morgan, has come up slightly um, almost by, by chance for me because I it, it's, it's a she's currently got I say she's currently got an exhibition. We've got an exhibition of her work. <laughs> she's sadly not around anymore um, at the fabulous Leighton House in West London. Now, we, we are going to we've promised our listeners a, an episode on Leighton House which we will do as well, um, because Frederick Lord Leighton is a fascinating character. But Leighton House are working with you at the moment on a an exhibition of um, a selection of the works of Evelyn de Morgan, who was a fabulous pre-Raphaelite painter um, and her work is, is stunning. Um, so we thought we'd get you on to have a little chat about her, because the more I was reading up about her, the more, more fascinating she was. And we thought, well, actually, this is this is a fantastic topic. So. Um, as director of the De Morgan Museum, you are, I guess, the the expert on Evelyn De Morgan, right? Yeah, that was quite a scary moment, actually, when I took on the full-time role in 2018 and then suddenly overnight, you're the expert in, uh, <laughs> in an artist. But five years on, I would safely say that, yeah, having sort of devoted the last five years to the study of the work of her and her husband, William De Morgan, who is an amazing ceramicist as well. So he'll probably come up whilst we're chatting today. Um, and, you know, by nature of him being a male artist, I think that's p- possibly a name that your listeners might have heard of mm. um, before a little bit more than his wife, which is what we're here to set the record straight. Time. Absolutely. And and she is, so she doesn't come under the pre-Raphaelite banner, which is quite a famous art movement. And it's got quite a, a, a particular look to it, hasn't it? You can, it, it's a really easy um, movement to to pick out. You can look at something and go, oh, that that's pre-Raphaelite because they, they definitely have a style, don't they? Yeah, that was the whole aim of the Brotherhood, really, when it was established in 1848, is they wanted to break away from the tradition of what had been done before and sort of have quite a radical, fresh, new look at the world around them and and to portray that through their artworks. And, uh, I mean, the key crucial elements of that were to create, excuse me, artworks which were um, had a truth to nature, is how they described it. So they would go outside and paint very detailed uh, elements of nature and embed that into their paintings. But they also wanted work to be relevant and address modern subjects, but did that by looking at the work of Raphael and uh, the artists who'd come before him. So there's a real historical element to the artworks as well. So how that manifests is you often get these sort of lovely languishing maids um, in yeah. these beautiful, very realistic, almost hyper-realistic uh, depictions, often of real people. They use re- you know real models from the modern world around them. Um, and uh, their, their methods were interesting as well. So they would always use a very white ground to paint their colours on. So you get very kind of bright jewel-like paintings, which, mm. you know, sometimes it's hard to believe they're up to 150 years old. They are wonderful. And, and again, it, it was that that thing of going against what was expected of the art world at the time wasn't it which is often where you get these fantastic movements from I mean we look at the, I mean possibly the most famous art movement of all which is the impressionists is exactly what they were doing um and the 
sort of the established, I guess, art at the time was, it was actually quite classical, wasn't it? It was quite, um, yeah, looking at the the, the Renaissance and, and really harking back to that. And, and I love, I love a groundbreaker. I love somebody who goes, you know what you're doing? I'm going to do the complete opposite. And, and that's what the pre-Raphaelites did. Yeah, so it's interesting with De Morgan with, you know, we've got that in mind about these groundbreaking people because she definitely, you know, absolutely fits into that mould. Um, she was actually born in 1855, which was three years after the Brotherhood had all but disbanded, really. So she was growing up with the legacy of pre-Raphaelite art and what it had done for art education and for public displays of art in, in Britain in particular. Um, but she was definitely a groundbreaker. Her parents were from you know, upper middle class. They were Her father was a QC and her mother was from the landed gentry. And apparently her mother is quoted as saying that she wanted a daughter, not an artist. And this gives us an <laughs> idea of, sort of, yeah, the gender stereotypes around her at the time. And she really did have to sort of stake her claim in the in the game as a woman. Mm. Now, fortuitously for her, the Slave School of Art had opened at the right time that she was the right age to enter. And she became one of the first female um, students to go there. And the real benefit of this is that the Slade allowed women into the life drawing room. So something that had always been very much established as a critical element to art education, to be able to draw from the life model. And that's yeah. a, a real person, um, often nude. Um, so you can imagine the taboos in Victorian Britain around allowing young women to access particularly nude male models. Uh, but the Slade allowed that. And so De Morgan sort of went there and, and really honed her craft in life drawing particularly quickly went on to win a full scholarship at the Slade so three years of, um, of funding towards her studies and uh, access to other schools at University College London um, or University of London as it was then um, so we know that she attended anatomy classes and saw live dissections of human models wow, and took okay. notes from that so again just really for a young woman to be doing that at the time it was um, quite groundbreaking really. That's incredible. And just very quickly coming back to her mum, I did read somewhere, and you can correct me if this is completely wrong, but didn't her mother tell her art tutor to tell her that she was actually quite rubbish at art to stop her becoming an artist? Apparently so. So all these sort of <laughs> stories about her come from the biography her sister wrote about her in 1922. Now, her sister was 10 years younger than her, so lots of it must have been hearsay and sort of family um, sort of jokes and family lore and uh, that sort of yeah. yeah exactly so I always take it with a little bit of a pinch of salt but um given her mother's her mother's background like I say from the the landed gentry very upper middle class it's it's highly likely um and we know that from that same source uh De Morgan's response to this was that if she had to be presented as a debutante to society then she would go and kick the queen uh apparently so that shows how oh. she felt about oh my that, uh, goodness! That's <laughs> that more genteel hilarious. side of London life. Yeah, she wasn't prepared <laughs> to be um, presented to society at all. She wanted to go off and do her thing and live this bohemian lifestyle and become an artist, which happily uh, for us today she managed to do. And so you say she at the art school she was allowed to go to the life life drawing classes and and that sort of thing. Did she have the sort of full range of of access to things like that as the, the male students or was there were there any sort of you know restrictions on on her yeah so women had to draw from a covered model i.e uh -huh. um a, you know 
the privates would the, be the danglies. <laughs> <laughs> shrouded the from these poor young, you know, gentle women who you know couldn't possibly face anything like that. Uh, so all of her sketches from her time of the slave have these men in these quite uh, cumbersome nappies, which is quite uh, quite amusing. Um, it also states in the Slade Prospectus, uh, which is still in the University of London's archive today, from 1872 when she started, that women cannot attend the live room after 5pm. Goodness knows oh. what would happen if they saw a nude figure. Is that after 5pm all, all bets are off? It <laughs> all hell breaks loose. <laughs> the men only in the evening hours. And again, this just goes to show what uh, the, you know, the, taboo with Victorian London was and um, how closely associated uh, sort of artist models were with prostitution you know they're absolutely synonymous in the public imagination so to allow young women into that space um, really was, was sort of breaking away from tradition in quite a major way and she was she was at the epicenter of that she was right at the beginning of it. That's so interesting because again it, yeah like you say it's that thing of things are starting to change but only in a little way and and if any woman that steps out of line sort of gets tarred with this brush of you know either a, a, or a disruptor or usually just an easy one like you say uh prostitution which um is inc- i mean we, we it's funny because we see that with the story I'm, I'm completely tangenting here of um of jack the ripper in the 1880s where they say oh they were all prostitutes and actually there's been a lot of well um a, a particular book written recently by Hallie Rubenhold called The Five talks about how actually no they weren't maybe one was but the rest of them weren't but it's it's a very easy thing to kind of write off women if you know if they don't fit into to whatever it is that you're trying to 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 put forward that and also interesting because Evelyn de Morgan of course like you say she's from a very good background uh without wanting to sort of you know class shame anybody but there was there was definitely a, a sort of class divide there wasn't there of, of women of a certain class were expected to do a certain thing and, and so then to be just easily tarred with that brush because she didn't fit in is, is quite a that's quite something isn't it exactly yeah it's quite major yeah so this school amazingly the Slade gives her the space to explore and paint and then you said it gives her access to uh well London University of London as it was um how does she kind of go from there to then breaking into the art world, which must have been, again, another barrier for, for a woman um, to have to do? Yeah, I mean, I can only put it down to talent, really. It was when she started at the Slade that she stopped using her Christian name, which was actually Mary, and began using her middle name, Evelyn or Evelyn, however people pronounce it. Uh, and I think that's because that was a, a unisex name. Men mm. were called Evelyn as well. And so that she could really be assessed on her own merit rather than having the you know she's a woman so it's never going to be as good Um, and the number of prizes she won at the Slade is quite astonishing for her compositional work from her study from life and from the antique model as well Um, and so as soon as she sort of finished at the Slade it's a bit woolly as to exactly when the records don't really cover that Um, but she started exhibiting her artworks immediately. And in 1876, when she was just 21 years old, she exhibited at the very prestigious Dudley Gallery. And a Guardian journalist actually wrote a piece on her her artwork, which was uh, a very similar work to, if anyone knows it, Raphael's St. Catherine. Um, you can definitely see that there's stylistic influences from Raphael there. Uh, and it was her St. Catherine of Alexandra that the Guardian artist said, oh, it's, it's a beautiful piece of art and you'll be so surprised to know it's by a woman artist by the name of Miss Pickering, as she was then. So yeah, even, you know, this shock that a woman could produce something that was good. Um, 
is probably something that helped propel her. And when the first Grosvenor Gallery exhibition uh, opened, which is a, a fabulous um, exhibition space, sort of a rival to the Royal Academy Summer Exhibition, which I, I know, again, lots of your listeners will know about. Yep. <laughs> um, uh, and it was established in the 1870s by Sir Coots Lindsay of bank fame to mm. really celebrate modern artists uh, and people working in what was known by then as the aesthetic movement tradition. So she was invited um, to exhibit alongside some of the greats of the day, such as Frederick Law Leighton, who we've mentioned, G.F. Watts, Burne Jones. Um, wow. So she was handpicked uh, from that initial exhibition success that she'd had and her early That's paintings amazing. were bought by the great and the good of London society uh, various different MPs and lords so yeah she was sort of well renowned pretty quickly into her professional career. That's so fantastic so why is it then that we don't know her name quite as much as we do a lot of other contemporaries? Yeah it's horrendous isn't it? I don't know. I wish I knew. Um, and, you know, as a woman myself, speaking on the Ladies Who London podcast, I think uh, we all <laughs> we all know the, the why, um, because she's a woman. It's it's really the only thing you can put it down to. When you look at her paintings and her artworks today alongside those of some of her contemporaries, you know, they are as good, if not better, in some cases, um, as the artworks she was looking at and being inspired by in her circle. So it's, uh, it's a sorry story, isn't it, of history sort of male washing um, yeah. what what mean, what it means to be successful yeah we see this we do see this quite a lot with um, a lot of the topics that we cover so it comes as no surprise really um to, for that to be a factor um so talk me through a little bit so um actually for our listeners we, we will have our show notes we'll put the pictures up there so you can see and, and what we'll do is we'll we'll put the Raphael side by side um with uh even so you can kind of see the two because they they do yeah it's 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 really lovely you can see the influence um very much um there which is really really lovely so talk to me a little bit about her style so we said pre-raphaelite um and she she has got this gorgeous i mean like you say pre-raphaelites are all about breaking the mold a bit and it's very much about people and she's she's done this this study on figures but she takes it one one step further and actually that this exhibition at Leighton house is known as the gold paintings, which, I mean, is quite exciting. So what what is it? Tell me a bit more about that. Yeah, I'll just come at this from a completely personal perspective um, <laughs> because it's sort of my journey into how this exhibition came about, really. Um, so when I took over at the De Morgan Foundation, obviously I'd, I'd known the paintings, they were up on up on the walls and you're able to see them. Um, but starting as, as director at the museum, I would then instantly had access to the De Morgan Foundation's archives, which include 800 of these works on paper, which the gold drawings or paintings are. Um, and I found one of them and I just thought, what on earth is this? You know, I've never seen it in person before, only on a screen and you just, you know, it doesn't do them justice. Um, and I started to try and kind of rack my brains for other things from the period that were similar. And I knew that Burne Jones had produced gold drawings on a uh, sort of an indigo paper of his, his own invention. He'd been very inspired by uh, medieval illuminated manuscripts to experiment in gold. Um, but some of her compositions just really take that quite a lot further and they're very elaborate, very detailed and have this amazing range of textures in them, all produced in monochrome gold on a dark paper. And even now to this day, after having the exhibition open, when sometimes you get feedback from different art historians, we're yet to identify another artist from the period outside of De Morgan and Byrne Jones who were working in this media. And um, it's, it's really? incredible that, you know, she... She may have seen one of Byrne Jones's. We know through friends and family links that she knew him, um, that she'd spent time with him, that she would have visited his exhibitions. Um, 
but yeah for her to sort of take that idea and and run with it if that is if it you know I hate crediting it to to Bern Jones who was never particularly <laughs> nice about her um so she may have sort of thought of it on her own and they've you know somehow produced these things simultaneously but she really did push the possibilities of it through her technical mastery of the of the craft and um and like I said the uh, compositions that she creates are far more ambitious than any uh, by Byrne Jones in this medium. So they really are fantastic. And I just thought, you know, we've got to get these out on show. Oh. Um, so I undertook quite a lot of research into them uh, and was particularly interested in how she'd made them. Because, you know, if it was such an easy to come by material, why wasn't everybody doing it? They look fantastic. And so what we found was an archive of um, the sales ledgers of a colourman who was an art supplier in the Victorian period called Charles Robeson. And happily for us, de Morgan had an account with him. And also happily for us, he was a very meticulous record keeper. Ah, so we like them. <laughs> yeah, oh, we really love them. They are excellent. And in stark contrast to the de Morgans themselves, who weren't very good record keepers, <laughs> frustratingly. Um, so there's this whole sort of section in the ledger titled Evelyn de Morgan, or Evelyn Pickering, as she was before she married, um, with her address and everything she was buying from him and what it appears that she did from looking at these records was work very closely with Robeson to have canvases prepared to her exact specification she'd take them back in and get him to cut them down to size for her okay um and something that I noticed she was buying was a cake of gold oh yummy no was this, is this that. actual this is actual gold <laughs> is it so what a cake is, is a dry pellet of pigment. So if you think of your watercolour boxes you had in primary school, mm -hmm. that's what a cake is. You add the water and it becomes wet. But with it being gold, there must be something else in there. And mm. whether that is pure gold or whether it's a chemical sort of creation, chemistry is not fantastic, as you can tell, <laughs> uh, sort of something that's been put together synthetically to make the appearance of gold when it is added to paper. But because she's painting on paper and not canvas, and the gold is so bright, you know, this Alex, you've seen them, it sort of mm. twinkles from the wall. Um, I believe she was doing something a little bit different with this pigment. And I think what she probably would have had to do is grind it into a, a very fine powder, a very dusty powder, and add something a little bit harder than water um, that would have stuck it together. So perhaps an oil, but probably something like a gum Arabic to make her own quite sort of quite thick paints in order to achieve this range of textures uh, that she does throughout the drawing. So you can see already, you know, even though why is her reputation not better known? I wish it was, as well as having the, the insight to produce the beautiful paintings that sort of fit in with the, the stereotypical um, movements and uh, looks of mm. the day. She was also very interested in the technical aspects of her artwork and really did push her craft um, to the extreme. and, and created these fantastic and beautiful things by doing so and it's such a unique it's like you say no one else was doing it burn jones was doing it a bit but not this way and 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 so it's so unique and it, that's what i think really makes her stand out amongst uh the other pre-raphaelites as well so do you what do you think she has a a particular masterpiece do you think there's one piece that sums her up or that is just her absolute you know the zenith of her talent what would you is that in total or from within the gold drawings well, um, I, well, I think in total, but I, well, let's, let's do both. Actually, let's do the, yeah. the best, the best of the gold drawings, and then, and then her masterpiece elsewhere. 
So I will just caveat this by saying it's so hard to do because the range <laughs> of pictures that she was creating really did fit into a number of movements. So in sort of quite stark contrast to lots of the, the leading men of the pre-Raphaelite uh, Brotherhood, she lived until 1919. Mm. So her career actually expanded through a number of different art movements. We've got works that look symbolist, which is a movement that sort of came over from France in the late 19th century got paintings that fit in very clearly with the aesthetic movement narrative so the the group championed by Oscar Wilde that believed in art for art's sake or that art yeah. should be beautiful and um, with no narrative kind of above ev everything else then she hits the kind of later pre-Raphaelite wave where we've got these very richly detailed medieval looking paintings but then around the time of the first world war she really changed tact and made very deep meaningful uh, images that um, are quite arresting and really commented on the the great impact on humanity and humankind through the great war that she lived through so we've got this kind of amazing spectrum of different styles that she fits into um and then we've got this range of different techniques she uses as well so from the <laughs> the works on paper through to her fantastic drawings which are just astonishing and really beautiful um what you're but, saying is i posed you an impossible question right yeah you have <laughs> um, but i think the you know there is one there is one within her her paintings and it's a picture called flora from 1894 so really when she was at the peak of her artistic training she was spending six months of the year living in italy by this point and flora is the goddess of springtime and florence the city she lived in and loved and in terms of its technical kind of mastery of oil painting and how beautiful it is. Uh, that's that's the one really for me. Um, it's a painting that gets requested for loan quite a lot. Uh, it's currently in America. Um, and I just don't worry about it as much as I do with some of the other artworks that sort of, you know, how conservators look at it. And they say the way she's put the painting together is so intelligent and so clever that it is just standing the test of time beautifully and um it's it looks as though it was painted yesterday it's uh, a fabulous it is, picture it is absolutely gorgeous i've not seen it in person I've, I've only ever seen pictures of it online i'm just gonna um describe it for, for the listeners and again they can they can see this in our show notes but you've got this beautiful it's it's a very long thin piece vertical piece with this beautiful woman standing with flowing well sort of reddish blonde hair and I mean it, it literally looks like she's underwater it's sort of flowing up and all over and then she's got this gorgeous draped gold gown with covered in in flower imagery and that's the gold section isn't it of the uh, uh is that is that actually the the, the that's the bit she uses the gold paint on is the dress yeah so it's got gold yeah. in it so when it's lit correctly in a gallery it kind of radiates into the space around you and it's quite a thing to be in front of you know it's quite uh, an impactful piece to see in real life really I, I can't I can't wait to see it in real life um as you're standing barefoot on a carpet of flowers and grass and the behind is this beautiful bush with loads of uh, what look like oranges or possibly even pears or clementines on and then there's a, be a beautiful blue sky behind that and it's really lovely it feels very it's a very romantic image um which I guess Flora is a sort of slightly romantic goddess isn't she really it's all about springtime and you know new birth and all this sort of thing um but it is a really really stunning piece um so yeah I was, I was wondering if you were gonna say flora because i think it's i think it's gorgeous but that's not in the exhibition at the moment is it it's so not no that's uh that's an oil painting and what we wanted to do in this exhibition is absolutely focus on these gold drawings Fine. um really so that we could write the interpretation so the, the bits that you read when you go into the exhibition to focus on her her skill and her mastering of this craft because 
so often with women artists that doesn't get included you'll get some biography you'll get to hear about some of the men you've heard of that they knew yeah. and we wanted to completely erase all of that so there's very little um kind of biogra biographical information in the exhibition it really does hone in and focus on this um unique medium that she was working in and on the narrative she wanted to communicate through the subjects that she tackled within them fantastic and would you say there's one particular piece in the exhibition that that you think is the absolute must see or is it very much the, the narrative is spread across everything what what, what would your oh no I've got a favorite in that one. Oh, okay um, okay <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that's definitely a, a, one of these gold beautiful gold drawings on dark paper called Gloria in Excelsis um, so this is the moment in the uh, bible stories when the angels are sent from heaven to announce the birth of christ to the shepherds so we have these two stunning women in lots of flowing drapery with their enormous wings one of them's got a harp one of them's got a scroll to sing the gloria to the shepherds uh, and then there's this huge choir of cherubs above them in this ark kind of leaning up to heaven um but the way the figures are arranged is so clever that they the two angels at the front of us look like they're stepping into your space mm, yeah. and and I think for her, being someone who was very, um, uh, I think we could probably describe her spiritual today. So she did go to church, you know, she was a Christian in faith, but also believed in spiritualism and practiced communicating with the spirits of the departed, as many uh, yep. genteel Victorians <laughs> did. Um, but I think for her, this picture is almost, you know, the angels are, are like living, breathing humans and having them almost stepping forward into our space really is bridging that gap between the sacred and the profane and in only a way that possibly this beautiful illuminating gold pigment yeah. taken from medieval altarpieces could possibly do so that's um that's a real treat to see that one if you can make it to Leighton House and I remember when I saw that one like you say it because it, it, it obviously the gold looks amazing and, and like you say they look like they're stepping forward and I remember looking at it all and then suddenly the the angel on the right you just lock eyes with it and it's looking out at you. And then uh, that was the bit that made me really feel part of the image. I was like, oh my goodness. You know, it was almost like we shared a moment. It was quite, it's quite bizarre because often they, you know, they don't, unless it's a portrait of a, you know, a, a, I don't know, a aristocrat or something. Um, and even then they're not always looking out of the image at you. And especially in, in things like this, they often aren't when it's more of a um, allegorical something. But there, yeah, this bit where the angel was just sort of looking at you, I was like, oh, okay. I'm I'm part of this now. It was it was really quite amazing. Yeah, it's very clever, isn't it? A real yeah. way to draw you in by having that human connection through space and time with a drawing from 150 years ago. It's uh, amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you, you mentioned that she 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 lived in 1919, so she lived through the First World War, and um, and you said that her art changed a lot, and she does do quite a few pieces where she has an almost physical manifestation of war and suffering in dragons and things like that, doesn't she? And um, which is, I was quite intrigued by because, like you say, it's the, the pre-Raphaelites. We are the, the, the core, let's say, trad pre-Raphaelites are, are earlier, so they never would have got to that stage. So it's a really interesting the sort of things she must have lived through. I mean, she lived through, you know, the, the industrial revolution, the aftermath of all of that, the the change of a a quite in, you know. It, well-known monarch and uh, and then the first world war there's there's a lot of change that she's seeing in that era uh, and that must have felt quite I don't know disconcerting in a way especially towards the end of her life suddenly sure. you've got this huge war across the continent and um yeah you can you can imagine that it's going to affect her art yeah absolutely I think for artists like her that really poured their heart and soul into their pictures that's kind of her window on the world and she was mm. very reactive to things happening around her but 
I think she always did it in quite an intelligent way where she was able to almost stick with what people expected of her aesthetically and then use that to subvert the messaging going on around her and kind of always fill her pictures with her social and political beliefs. You know, she was very engaged and very switched on in not just the art world, but the wider world around her. And um, I mean, yeah, we did, we definitely see that with her series of quite profound war pictures, but uh, you know, earlier than that, it's um, the feminism always comes through in her pictures. So as early as 1889, she signed the declaration in favor of women's suffrage uh, and, and continued to sort of, not very publicly, but always through her art kind of supported uh, women's rights. When you look at a series of her paintings, if you go online and do that, you'll notice that often uh, the main character, the protagonist is always the woman. Um, mm. Even when she's depicting kind of the Trojan War, she focuses on Cassandra from mythology. So the prophetess who could uh, hear, the, hear the future, but uh, no yeah. one believed her when she spoke it. And I think obviously using that uh, character from history, it's, it's quite telling, isn't it? Of what she Absolutely. thought was going on in the world around her. And um you know, I promised you a bit of William de Morgan as well, and it's always a good time to bring him up mm-hmm. uh, because they married in 1887. They had a very unusually equal marriage for the day in that Evelyn was the main breadwinner. She bought the house that they lived in as a married couple in her name, in her maiden name before the wedding. Um, but he was a very public advocate for women's suffrage and used his position of fame that he found in his later years as an author to advocate for and become what we call today you know, a really strong ally uh, for equality for women's rights. So he became the vice president of the Men's League for Women's Suffrage in oh, 1914. Wow. Um, and there's lots of uh, letters, in uh, open letters in newspapers by him sort of really uh, showing his support. That's fantastic. And it's really edifying, isn't it, when you get a strong woman who is uh, fighting for things like that and the husband it's very much aligned with those values. And we do see it a lot, especially in the Victorian era of women who do that. And they, you know, it says, oh, their husband was also aligned with that. Because that that's what you want, isn't it? You don't want them to be marrying just for the sake of marrying and, and settling down with somebody who doesn't support that when you've got someone who's a very strong woman and a very strong advocate for that. So that, that's fantastic. That's really good to know. Yeah, instead of being completely demasculated by yeah. her success, he was absolutely... I think they were behind each other. You know, it just always feels whenever I read anything about them, like a, a really, you know, proper loving relationship. It's um, it's very heartwarming, really. That's so lovely. <laughs> I know. I think they were sweethearts. <laughs> oh, I rather like that. And so you said she got they got married in 87, 1887, yeah. was it? So that's actually quite late for her to marry in Victorian standards. She'd been 32, wouldn't she? So Yeah, and um, he was 46. So it's quite a big age gap between them wow. as well. Um, and I think maybe that's that's what helped. You know, they both had their success in their own right and yeah. then come together as these two kind of great artistic figures um, through friendship groups they were both in. And uh, and, and yeah, you would hope really... that people who who break the boundaries with their career and their work are also going to break the boundaries with their, their life as well. They're just their social everything. So I, I love that. Um, that they're like, yeah, we're just going to do what we want and, and yeah, exactly. stuff, the, stuff the haters, <laughs> which is fantastic. We're going to take a very quick pause now. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day 
at sax.com. Okay, back to the podcast. Um, and so they said so they, they had a very happy marriage. Um, did uh, did Evelyn outlive her husband or the other way around? Or? She did, but only by two years. Oh, okay. So, I mean, lots of people say maybe she died of a broken heart, which is quite sweet. But um, yeah, she was quite young when she died. I can't remember that. I think she had a, a chronic illness, quite yeah. a, something to do with her heart maybe. But um, yeah, she only outlived him by, by two years. William died in 1917 and she followed in 1919. And they're buried in, well, Brookwood Cemetery, aren't they? So yeah, globally London. We'll, we'll yeah, lovely <laughs> London, but out in Woking, if anyone fancies stomping around quite an interesting graveyard. Uh, yeah. I've been to visit their grave myself and it's beautiful. It was designed by Evelyn and carved by George Frampton, um, the oh, okay. very celebrated arts and crafts uh, carver. And uh, yeah, it's it's worth going to see if you're into into that sort of thing. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, we have done a podcast before on the necro train, the the, the death train yeah. that took people from Waterloo. So um, the, yeah, yeah, it's amazing how these things... been on that. <laughs> yeah, they probably would have been, wouldn't they, I suppose? Yeah, yeah my goodness. Um, yeah, it's amazing how these things uh, come together. Um, so you're, you're the, the director of the De Morgan Museum um, and uh, and there's the foundation that goes with it as well. So where where is the museum? How, what, what else does the foundation do? How how What do you do apart from this fantastic exhibition at Leighton House? What else? Uh, how does it work? Yeah, it's a million dollar question and people <laughs> often ask, you know, oh, where were you based? And I think, right, here we go. Um, and then you can see them sort of slowly getting bored, but I'll do my best by giving you a bit of a history of the foundation to uh, to support what, what we do today. So the entire De Morgan collection, which is about 2,500 artworks with all the drawings and ceramics by William De Morgan, as well as the paintings by Evelyn, um, and that was collected by Evelyn's younger sister, who I mentioned before, who wrote the biography in 1922. So she was 10 years younger than Evelyn and lived to be 99. So she didn't actually wow. die until 1965. And she collected all of this artwork and had it in her home with her up until her death. And the story goes, you could go knock on her door at old Battersea House, just, just south of the Thames near Battersea Park. And either her or the butler would let you in and sort of give you a candlelight tour of this kind of quite Mishavison-esque sounding uh, building. Um, and then after she died, she'd set up a trust to look after the collection. So that is what is now today the De Morgan Foundation, the charity that owns all the artwork. But very sadly, the house was on a lease from Battersea Council, so we never inherited any property. So since the time that she passed away, we, the foundation, uh, the charity, owns the art collection. So we work in partnership with lots of lovely other organisations who help us to display this fantastic collection. And the main site for that is now known as the De Morgan Museum after we received our accreditation status in November 2022. So just last Congratulations. year. Congratulations. Um, yeah, thank you. That was a huge undertaking. But we wanted to have that uh, that specific site because we do so much exhibition work. It felt good to have a home. And the reason uh, it's at uh, Cannon Hall in Barnsley is that that was Evelyn De Morgan's mother's family home. So Evelyn spent a lot of time there in the 1880s. So it felt like a really lovely historic link to have the De Morgan Museum at Cannon Hall. So our home is at Evelyn's home, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, but we also have partnership exhibitions at the Watts Gallery in Surrey, which people might know, at the fantastic Whittock Manor in Wolverhampton, which is a beautiful Arts and Crafts National Trust property. Mm -hmm. um, we have a display of ceramics at the Ashmolean. There's a small display of uh, one painting and some ceramics at the Queen's House in Greenwich. And then we have our touring exhibition. So Goodness currently me. the Gold's Drawings <laughs> exhibition at Leighton House. And we have an exhibition of ceramics called Sublime Symmetry, 
equivalent, which looks at William's interest in mathematics uh, through his ceramic designs, which is at RAM, the Royal Albert Memorial Museum in Exeter until September this year. So one or two things Ooh, going on. Blimey, <laughs> goodness me. That I don't is think that... I forgot anybody. <laughs> <laughs> that's a busy old uh, workload for, for you and, and all of the other uh, paintings. That's that's amazing. Goodness, what a yeah, success. It's, um, it's, 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 I actually think it's a lovely operating model. You know, it, it gives as many people as we possibly could the opportunity to see yeah. these artworks and, and really try and, and get the De Morgan name better known that's that's, that's fantastic the, the well we, we do have listeners all over the place so if they want to find out if there's something close to them is there a website that they can go to to have a look yeah you can go to our website which is very easy it's demorgan or one word dot org dot uk fab and then it'll have a a list of what's what's where and uh amazing um and so the exhibition at Leighton house now this is we have a bit of an exclusive here don't we uh because it was due to be finishing in august However, it's just been extended. And yeah, I think we are... By popular demand. By popular demand. I think we're the first to, to announce that. I think it's also gonna, they're going to announce it on the same day as this podcast goes live. So when is it now extended until? Um, oh, I should have checked that. Should I? Definitely October. Definitely October. Sometime in October. We'll, Sometime uh... in October. <laughs> <laughs> I want to say the first, but then if it's the 31st, that's terrible, isn't it? Um, October. Check our website. I'll make sure yeah. it's updated. But uh, yeah, it means you've got through uh, right till the end of the summer, at least, to Fantastic. see it. Um, and I'm actually looking forward to seeing it, you know, when the nights start drawing in again <gasps> and, yeah. and the heat's gone. And we'll, you know, I think they really lend themselves to a, an autumn winter show. Just, yeah. Than the summer one. But, absolutely. Uh, yeah, they yeah. just glitter. Oh, they're incredible. Absolutely yeah. wonderful. Um, so if people want to go and see uh, the exhibition, then it's at Leighton House, uh, which is in West London. Um, it's £11 entry for an adult or nine pounds for concession and the exhibition is free once you're in there so it's all part of it um, but Leighton House itself is I mean one of my favorite little places in London it's it's such a unique spot to the point where uh, the first time I went I fell in love with the tiles in the main hall and I had to get tiles as close as I could to that for my bathroom uh, <laughs> you must <laughs> it is interior design goals it really is um and i think the the, the gold paintings just totally tie in with that because it, the Leighton house is just all about opulence and beauty and and over the topness and it's just wonderful um so listeners you have until october to go and catch this which is fantastic um and i will uh, just thrilled. pop in alex and say mm. that actually um with the new redeveloped Leighton house actually you don't have to pay for the gold drawings exhibition you can get into that for free but i mean definitely go and see the rest of the museum whilst oh, you're so there you can, you can go for free without going you into can, the rest of the house yes ah yes. interesting interesting okay. so well worth going just save yeah. you all 11 quid there you go <laughs> <laughs> but we want you to go to Leighton House as well obviously yes, if you've you not been you if you've not been oh that's <laughs> so amazing thank you so much um for coming and chatting to me Sarah it's been a real treat finding out about Evelyn de Morgan and I have to say I'm having done a little bit of reading and chatting to you today I'm, I'm obsessed I think she's she's amazing and uh I'm going to be going back to have another look at the exhibition which is uh which is yeah it's brilliant so Please do, listeners, if you're in London. We do have a few people who do live in London and go to pretty much everything, which is fantastic. Uh, they know who yeah, they are. I know if you've been. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll do this. We'll tag your social media um, in, right. our, in our post as well so that people can uh, can follow you. And, and yeah, if, you know, um, do go and, and, and let Sarah know if you've been to have a little look because it is really, really worth it. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Sarah. Really appreciate you popping along. Thank you. Good to talk to you. Bye. So there we go, team. 
That was Evelyn de Morgan uh, and a massive thank you to Sarah for coming along and chatting to us about a really fascinating lady who, are, again, like so many women who break boundaries who we've not spoken about or not heard about. Um, I absolutely love it. Have you been to see the exhibition yet, Fiona? Not yet. No, I've, I've been to Leighton House since it reopened, but not to this exhibition. And I don't know, did, did this come up in your chat? I noticed they've been shortlisted. Leighton House has been shortlisted for Museum of the Year from... Oh, um, no, that the, didn't come up. The Arts Fund, I think. So oh, fantastic. for them for that. Amazing. And we are going to be having a chat with somebody from Leighton House about the museum and Frederick Lord Leighton at some point in the not-too-distant future as well. Because it is... Frederick Lord Leighton is unbelievably brilliant um and in fact we should definitely do that before later on this year because pygmalion is coming to the old vic and there is a link between frederick lord layton and pygmalion george Ooh. bernard shaw's pygmalion so maybe we should do that before people i'm not going to tell you what it is because uh uh, you know, otherwise we ruin a future podcast. But that might be quite a nice one to slot in. So we'll, we'll see if we can get that um, before Pygmalion comes onto the uh, onto the stage, which I've just booked tickets for today, actually. All very exciting. Um, so yeah, Evelyn de Morgan, if you can go and catch the exhibition as they uh, announced in our podcast, we have a first. Um, it is being extended till October. So please do go and have a look. But this, that week, uh, this week, that week, that week, this week, <laughs> that's everything from us, I think. What? what, what? <laughs> Anything to uh, to add, Fiona, before we say goodbye? Not really. No. It'll keep, no. <laughs> it'll keep till next week. <laughs> well, listen, gang, we will see you uh, next week and also um, this weekend when we give you a little bit of something extra Ooh. as well. For your listening pleasure. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you then. Bye. Bye-bye.